Cannabis Science is a program dedicated to teaching the listeners about the science of cannabis and the cannabis industry. We by no means promote the use of cannabis or the use of cannabis amongst minors. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Cannabis Science Podcast, a podcast dedicated entirely to discussing the science of cannabis from an industry insider's perspective. I'm Dr. Ricardo Rivera, and today I'm incredibly excited. We have an amazing guest. So before getting too far ahead of ourselves, here at Cannabis Science, our aim is to share to our global audience the facts and information required to become knowledgeable consumers in an industry often filled with false or misleading products and players. And, you know, the idea being to empower the listener to make conscientious treatment decisions for themselves and those they love. Having been in this industry almost 10 years, it seems that people, it feels like people who thought like me were in the minority. So when by serendipity, you get a chance to meet someone who not only wants to help the helpless, but who's also reached levels of professional academic success that are often associated with tech company founders or millionaire heirs than with scientists, activists, I take notice. Today, I'm talking with Stephen Goldner, founder and CEO of Pure Green, a fascinating company, which we'll get into in a little bit. But before we do, I'd like to just give a little brief overview. And when I say brief, I mean very, very brief because the man has done a lot of things in his life. But just a short list of his highlights. First of all, he was a forensic toxicologist in the world's most important city. And, and no, it's not Toronto, uh, in New York City. He invented the methadone formulation used to treat opioid dependence worldwide, as well as methods used to analyze said formulations and as well as cannabis, other opioids, and even LSD that are still used in labs today. He became very prominent and obviously sought after, but despite working a full-time job, he went to law school at night and became now a renowned attorney. So I'm super amazed about that, honestly. Uh, he's an advisor for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, as well as the National Institutes of Health, approving hundreds of drugs and therapies. He's founded a slew of highly successful regulatory manufacturing drug development companies. And from my extensive conversations with him, he's also led by an admirable passion and conviction for his fellow man. So I can go on and on, but why don't we just go directly to the man himself? So, Stephen, I'm super grateful to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I really appreciate this opportunity. It's not often that I get to be able to speak to so many people, especially on the west side of North America. So this is really terrific. I appreciate the opportunity. As a pharmacologist, with a specific focus on drug development formulations, I have a deep appreciation for the things that you've been able to achieve and some of the things that you're currently doing right now. Without going too technical, obviously, could you paint for the listeners kind of a brief picture of how you got involved in drug development and specifically for what reasons? And I'd really be happy to. It's so interesting. Many people think, how did someone who's gotten to be successful or acclaimed, how did they ever start? And it's just like anyone does. It was my first job. I was working 
as a chemist, as a forensic toxicologist at the New York Medical Examiner's Office. I needed a job after my first graduate school, and that's the one I could land. And while I was working at the New York Medical Examiner's Office, I started going back to another graduate school to get my MD slash PhD degree. And what was happening at that time it was the end of the 1960s, beginning of the 1970s, the Vietnam War was ending, and my high school and college buddies were returning. Some of them had developed terrible drug habits, and that was ruining their lives. I knew that I needed to help them. After all, they were honorable veterans of a terrible war. So some, one day, some researchers at my university walked into the chem section they had a grant to treat heroin addicts, and I offered to make a drug to help them with their research. I'd never done that before. I was really just 22 going on 23 years old. To make a long story short, over the weekend, my mentor and I figured out how to repurpose a molecule that had first been invented in Germany in the 1930s into the liquid form of methadone. And from that, we raised the money to start our little drug company. That took about three months. New York's pretty good at raising money. I managed to get methadone approved in 11 months by the Food and Drug Administration, and we started shipping it to treatment centers on the 12th month after that meeting. So it was just one short year, but it sure seemed like a much longer, lots of things going on. In any event, we just kept going, and it turned out that methadone turned out to be first-line medical therapy. It saved over 20 million lives over all these years around the world and positively impacted 200 million people. That was a pretty good start, I think. You Oftentimes you have professors that say, that boast, oh, I've put a drug into into people, you know, like from bench to bedside, but you've actually done that in more than once. And so, I mean, not to get too far ahead of myself here, but you've impacted people in a very positive way. A lot of people, you mentioned this before to me, that you really disliked or, or hated the way that people talked about heroin addicts, for example, that, you know, they're the scourge of society or whatever, but and I, and I share that view with you. You know, I think we can't demonize people who, for whatever reason, have fallen victims to drug or substance abuse. It's like calling somebody evil for being depressed, you know, clinically depressed or bipolar, right? Yeah, I, I actually thought that drug addiction was a medical problem. And it was probably because some of the people being demonized for being drug addicts and getting into trouble, they were my buddies from high school who just went off to serve their country and got messed up along the way. Nobody sets out to be a heroin addict as a career objective. That's for sure. Exactly. Stuff happens, and we have to respect all people and try to help them. And I was just, I've been incredibly lucky over and over again, I guess. It's been a decided effort to simply try to keep helping people. And in any event, that's, that's how that started for me. 
and I, I think we have we can talk much more about it in the coming few minutes. Yeah, definitely. And, and so, Steve, you, your career was in full swing after creating methadone. I would say creating it really because you made it functionally applicable or and administratable to people all over the world. And you're at this point, you're young. You decide to go into law school and become an attorney. Why? Why did you decide to do that? <laughs> That's a re really good question. After all, I was doing pretty good. Young guy, got a, my own business going. But what really happened, for anyone who's been an entrepreneur, I was working 24-7, 365 days a year, to get that little drug company going. It's tough. It's hard even with something that was working great and helping people. Plus, I had another drug testing lab. We developed the methods to detect LSD and marijuana, et cetera, in blood and urine. So we'd set up the first drug testing laboratory called Urine Analysis. And frankly, after three years of building that business, I was pretty burned out. Even though I was still young, just 27 or so, and a large pharmaceutical company had come along. It offered to buy us out that they would show us how they could really make this drug go worldwide. And they took me on board. And I figured this would be a good way to figure out how to get other drugs approved for this very large company. So this wonderful pharmaceutical, and it's a consumer products company. It operates worldwide. It gave me the opportunity to learn, frankly, how the big boys created new products. And I thought I could use that in my next endeavor. So what happened was I got a couple of their drugs approved at FDA that they hadn't been able to get approved for many, many years. And when they saw that, they offered to pay for me to go to law school while I worked there. And that after graduation and passing the bar exam, they would put me in charge of their FDA government affairs department. And that's exactly what happened at the age of, I guess, 32. I finished law school, passed the bar. They put me in charge of their FDA government affairs department for worldwide drugs and uh, healthcare products. And I've been doing that sort of work now for 45 years. Damn. <laughs> Saying that I'm impressed is, a, is an understatement, honestly. Like, I think many of us have thought about you know, after our academic or formative years of, and even, you know, after starting families, having careers, having the gall to, to go down that direction is actually very admirable. And then to be put in a position where you actually really, you have a, a, a critical role in the process of drug development is also amazing. But I don't want to toot your horn too much here. So let's... Uh, <laughs> Oh, my goodness. If you keep putting me up on a pedestal here, I'll have to keep shooing the pigeons away from it. So. Well, I think, you know, again, I, a lot of it maybe has to do with personal goals and seeing some of what you've done in the light of kind of wanting to emulate some of that. This is Cannabis Science Made Simple. So actually, this leads us into the next part, which is really... I think what many of our listeners are very interested in, which is jump a few years. You've been doing this for a while. Uh, you're an attorney. 
now you're very well embedded into the cannabis industry, but you were an established member of the, I would say, conventional pharmaceutical industry or, or big pharma. What did you see in mm -hmm. cannabis that drew you in that direction? What caught your eye or interest? Well, that's a really good question. I, frankly, I sat down and I read the medical and scientific journals that talked about cannabis research. It took about five minutes for me to see that there was incredible non-toxicity of this plant, plus its individual substances, THC, CBD, etc., were also incredibly non-toxic. Well, anyone who does drug development always knows that the first thing you look for is a safety factor so that you can dose patients. So once I'd seen that I could have a safety factor for formulation, then I went looking to see, was there any show of efficacy? And frankly, it really just took about another five or 10 minutes to see that there was a stunning array of actual uses that is, people could utilize cannabis or its individual substances for sleep improvement, for anxiety reduction, for pain reduction. These are tremendous needs of our society, societies all over the world. Not only that, this plant, this product was so non-toxic that people could actually smoke this stuff. They could self-dose themselves and they'd been doing it for centuries around the world, that there were no deaths and no impactful medical sequelae. And after literally just no more than an hour of looking at medical and scientific literature, my, it sounds funny, my blood began to boil to think that this medication had been withheld from the world that it was a sham perpetuated by politicians for their own personal gain, and it was depriving millions of people of medication, falsely imprisoning them and ruining their lives. It was the true embodiment of fake news. And I suppose that kicked in a combination of part of why I went to law school so many people do to think that they can right wrongs that are in society. And not just that, but in science and medicine, everybody goes into that to make the world better. So what happened is I was suddenly overdosing on righteousness, I guess. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I better get up and do something about it. That's what took me into this field of cannabis product development. I mean, I don't think I could have articulated that in a better way. But then it's interesting you mentioned that. And considering, again, that you are, I guess you have a foot on both sides of this industry, both regulatory and, and developmental. So could you shed some light on what the position of the FDA is regarding cannabis-based medicines and therapeutics? You just mentioned all these things that Obviously, I mean, you're kind of preaching to the choir here, uh, the listeners and, and myself, but for example, why has 
Epidiolex passed regulatory approval, but not Sativex, which is made by the same company. And despite having one being CBD and the other one having CBD and THC, why hasn't that gone through? Well, that's a really good question. And uh, this may be shocking to people, but the answer is really simple. The company sponsoring it, GW Pharma, simply says that they have not yet engaged with FDA to get Sativex approved. That is, Mm -hmm. they just didn't put the documents together yet. They thought they would go for approval of another drug, Epidiolex, and they did that. And now they're moving on to be able to get more approvals. So this is a perfectly sensible direction for any company to take get one thing approved, and then move on to the next. Now, in terms of FDA's overall position, I've been meeting and speaking with them informally for a number of years on this, and now formally uh, for our products and drugs for the last year or so. Frankly, FDA's overall position is that these are products, the CBD, THC, or other cannabinoids, just like any other product, and they are perfectly happy to review the medicine and science that's been developed and approve these products to go to market. Now, that said, FDA, some say, has have been complicit in not allowing adequate research to be done, certainly within universities because of the scheduling within the United States by DEA. But that is very, very quickly changing. It is literally, it has changed in the last few months as we've met with FDA. So whatever has happened in the past is pretty much being washed away. I mean, I think a lot of people would be very, very glad to to hear that. And I guess you, you see this change in the tone of, of bureaucrats in that area, but, and, and this is, I guess now let's, let's go into more the development side of, of the uh, cannabis industry, I would say that. And when I say development, again, I'm referring to like, you know, medicinal product development. I hear mm-hmm. that you're making significant inroads into the creation of what could be the first true cannabis based drug approved by the FDA. Is this something you could talk about or or you're under embargo? Or I think that I'm able to talk about it generally, but not with the specifics. But uh, let me give you some highlights of this. Uh, within our own company, we have filed for three investigational new drug applications with FDA. Mm-hmm. One of them to cure the opioid addiction crisis with one of our formulations. One of them to treat PTSD, that's another formulation, and one to relieve pain in pet dogs, that's a third formulation. And just Very quick- interestingly, I filed all three of these with FDA about six months ago. One of them was accepted within four days of filing. One took a month and another took two months. But FDA has accepted all filings 
Not only that, but they've granted us fast-track status for our pain relief formula for drug for dogs. And so I think that shows when you approach a regulatory agency, I mean, I've done this hundreds of times, and you approach them in the way that they expect to be treated using their language and their set of documents, that they're completely responsive to it. And we are moving forward with those drug development programs. So just uh, for the listeners, just an aside for the listeners, the IND or Investigation New Drug Application is, it's not trivial. It's a step that you take prior to conducting full-scale clinical trials in humans. And so it's, it's a big milestone for, especially for any drug, but for a cannabis-based drug, it's huge. So, I mean, that's, yeah, color me impressed. But, and the fact that it's fast-tracked is also very, very promising. I think, yeah, that, that means definitely that the, the regulatory agencies are, are aware and, and accept that these are needed therapeutics. So this allows us to segue then into what your, what your main company is right now, the company you're, one of the primary companies that you're running right now, which is called Pure Green. How is Pure Green different from, what, what is Pure Green, first of all, and how is it different from the other companies out there? Terrific question. So I'll give you the foundation story that's here in the last 18 months. I formulated half a dozen formulas, was able to run clinical trials here in Michigan to demonstrate that these ingredients could be used for sleep and pain and anxiety. And then I figured out how to convert oil-soluble THC and CBD and the others to water-soluble. Along the way, I've filed for seven patents, and I've won one of them so far. The rest are coming up soon, and we hope we'll win all of them, but we'll see. Uh, so we have a patent on freeze-drying cannabis. It's pretty exciting. It's a process patent. And with all of that, I applied for a Michigan medical license for my company, Pure Green. It was just me with two employees, and we won that license in March of this year, 2019. We opened the doors in June, and since then, we have shipped over 700,000 tablets all over Michigan, able to sell them through cannabis dispensaries. Uh, we've now grown to uh, about 100 employees or so. Business is better than break even. And we have repurposed the money that we've made in the Michigan medical marijuana market to allow us to open our pharmaceutical division or company called Pure Green Pharmaceuticals. And with that, we, that's the company that has petitioned FDA to have meetings with them, actually held those meetings, and we're developing those drug products to go through FDA. I think what sets Pure Green aside from other companies is that, well, frankly, I've done this a couple hundred times over all these years. I know how this goes when it works and when it doesn't. And so we tried to follow the path of pushing forward, of getting a license, demonstrating what works. 
for our products and the company. The real difference is we're scientists. We're FDA experts and physicians. We're dedicated. We've made reliable, repeatable, super fast-acting tablets. Our tablets actually disintegrate in 15 seconds in a person's mouth so that the medication gets into the bloodstream in a minute, and in two minutes, it's throughout the body. And so in eight minutes, a person can feel pain relief or anxiety relief or the onset of sleepiness and Frankly, solving PTSD, well, that's just a lot of pain and a lot of anxiety. It's a different formulation. Mm-hmm. So we now have products that work quickly, are reliable, repeatable, simple to use because they're simple tablets. You don't have to smoke mm-hmm. and you don't have to vape. I think exactly. that sets us aside from a lot of other cannabis companies. And the bioavailability of uh, sublingual formulation, you know, like about 80% of the drug gets absorbed through the mucosa. So, and you bypass the first pass metabolism, if I'm correct. That's exactly right. For the scientists in the crowd, Mm -hmm. if you take THC or CBD and it's just orally ingested, you, the body only gets about 8% of label weight. So if it says uh, 10, 10 milligrams on the label, you're only getting 8% of that into the system. You heard that Our here, guys. bioavailability is closer to 80%, so that's 10 times as much, mm-hmm. plus it's much rapid, more rapid onset. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, again, that's huge. You, you heard that here, guys. If you get a capsule or some sort of cannabis preparation, remember, cannabis is extremely difficult to dissolve in, in water. So you guys made something that is actually hydrophilic. So mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, most of these preparations that you get on for, from regular companies, yeah, you're, you can take a lot of it. You can take a few milliliters, but very small percentage of that will actually be absorbed, probably absorbed into the body to go where it needs to go. But you guys have made something that's actually incredibly effective and bioavailable and, and non-smoke. So it's definitely therapeutically or medically, medicinally inclined for physicians who may be hesitant to prescribe something that's uh, combusted or even vaporized. Well, that's right. I, I didn't see that physicians would prescribe to, that people should smoke joints or vape. Taking things through the lung is, is problematic, as mm-hmm. we see in this current vape crisis, mm-hmm. whereas tablets allow something to be easily handled, easily distributed, it's much more uniform every time. People smoke differently, they vape differently, and having it as non-oily allows us to make it taste good um, and feel pleasant feeling. It doesn't give an oily feeling, and that's important. You want people to to want to be able to take their medication. And so, so Steve, uh, we have just a few questions left and a few minutes left. Uh, I would say about 10 minutes left on this interview, but we're going to the part that I, that I'm actually the most excited about to hear from your perspective. So you've established a company that matches patients to clinical trials, testing novel therapies that could potentially save their lives. And and there's actually, you know, a very, a fantastic TED med talk that you give discussing this. Have you been able to conduct clinical trials with cannabis products, with the cannabis products you've developed like already, and what difficulties have you run into if you've conducted these trials? And 
and what results or outcomes have surprised you? Okay, that's a few questions. Let's see if I can remember it all as I start. Well, let's, let's, so just start with, let's just start is, with, like, have, yeah. you, have, you done, have you conducted clinical trials with cannabis products? Sure. So we've completed eight clinical trials so far right here in Michigan. Um, and one way to think of it is, well, we've completed eight clinical trials. We've even listed some of them on the National Institutes of Health, the NIH website, it's called clinicaltrials.gov, so anyone can go to clintrials.gov, put in cannabis, and they'll see a description of several of our trials. We keep uploading them. I think you asked also what difficulties we've run into in conducting the trials. Well, it was easy to enroll patients in Michigan. Usually when you run a clinical trial, the most difficult part is finding the appropriate patient population and enrolling them. It was easy in Michigan because there are 400,000 people with medical marijuana cards and they are easily identified and want to be sought out. However, there were parts of this that were very difficult. We couldn't find clinical trial sites to work with us. It was impossible to get insurance clinical trial insurance, getting stable banking, banking relationships so that we could just pay clinical sites and pay the patients for volunteering. That was incredibly difficult. But these are all the standard issues that every cannabis company in America faces as they start up. And we just kept working to knock down one problem after another we obviously found clinical sites to work with. We've run eight trials already. We have very stable banking relationships. All of our clinical trials now are run through institutional review boards, independent safety review boards, none of which would even look at our protocols a year ago. Now they're happy to look at them and review them. So all of those problems have been solved by us. Unfortunately, Michigan universities are unable to get involved in doing this research. That's too bad. Other states, for example, Connecticut and Pennsylvania, have encouraged their universities to get involved in this medical research, but not yet Michigan. However, thankfully, there are many clinical sites and lots of great physicians willing to work with us and they have all jumped in. So it's, it's been a process of finding a problem, solving the problem, as long as we keep moving forward, and that's what's happening. Gotcha. I mean, Steve, honestly, you know, I've had experience, at least I've conducted one clinical trial. I was able to direct and manage one clinical trial in Puerto Rico. And it was a very small trial with about 15 participants to look at the analgesic effects of a specific cultivar we were testing. So the, the stuff you're saying regarding like the hurdles and the loopholes and the fact that you've been able to conduct eight of these is very dramatic. You're listening to the Cannabis Science Podcast. There's a level of complexity and organizational management that 
you need for conducting a clinical trial in general. But then when you're conducting a trial with cannabis, whereby it's, for example, in Puerto Rico, we could only conduct a trial if it was private money that was being used and the cannabis was supplied from a specific company on the island and that the trial was conducted by a private entity. Couldn't be a public entity, couldn't be no federal money, none of that stuff. And then recruitment of the participants was actually also not trivial. And so I find it fascinating that you've seen this change from what it was before to now that you can actually get these trials done. But then that this is in the US with specific cannabis products that weren't from, for example, NIDA from the uh, facility in the University of Mississippi. So can you talk about what are some of the results or outcomes that most surprised you? Sure. Every time you run an experiment, you hope to get the results, frankly, that you're hoping for. It would be nice to be uh, uh, an independent scientist, but frankly, I got all of these clinical trials run because I paid for them. I am that private company. I have a license to grow our own marijuana and process it and turn it into tablets. This is private money, not government money. So I, I want it to go well. And what we discovered was that running these clinical trials allowed us to fine-tune our formulations for sleep, anxiety, and pain relief. But along the way, we discovered that we could ameliorate symptoms from Crohn's syndrome. We watched people with Alzheimer's actually reduce their symptoms week by week by week. That beyond that, Parkinson's syndromes, the tremors and other difficulties that come with it are susceptible to being resolved with THC, CBD, and the terpenes. Why, even in, when we ran our dog pain and anxiety studies, it was amazing to see that pets, that people felt so bereaved that they were going to have to put down their pet. Instead, we extended their life or brought them back to a healthy, balanced state within a couple of weeks. It's not because we invented marijuana. We've just figured out how to formulate it in a way that's easy to take. So that's why we are so excited to be able to bring these products across North America and then throughout the world. That's what we're aiming to do. And that's, uh, I'm sure the world's going to be very happy to have some of these products. And again, I, 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 I'm going to look up the NIH uh, studies because I, I think anybody who's jumped through the hoops required to do this work really should be lauded. And not a lot of cannabis companies, you mentioned that like all the cannabis companies kind of have to do this. Like, you know, I've met many, many, and this is not to disparage the companies that I've worked with and I've met and all these people that are really good. But the last thing many of these companies are thinking about it is doing clinical trials. Now they're kind of getting to that groove a little bit, but I would say the majority really aren't and haven't done any of them. And now the big ones in Canada are seeing the usefulness and the value in this, but take somebody with a specific mindset and, a, and definitely foresight 
to say, you know, let's do a clinical trial on all these products and see what happens because we really want to set ourselves apart and really quantify what the usefulness is of these products. So, so I mean, that's, that's cool. Well, thank you very much. I knew all along the only way to show the world and the regulators and the lawyers and the police that this worked was to actually put it into people in a controlled fashion and do it enough so that I had real proof and we've been publishing and presenting this data for the last year to the um, amazement and interest of one medical community after another. We just came back from presentations in Berlin. So this is a movement that's going to continue to grow, and I welcome all the rest of the pharmaceutical industry to come join us. I think we have first mover advantage, but we'll, we'll see. It's, meanwhile, we're having a lot of fun, and for me, this is fulfilling a mission a mission that I started on 45, 50 years ago, and it's just moving forward. Steve, I can chat with you for hours about this, but I think for the, for the sake of brevity, we're going to have to wrap this up. But before I leave you, I have one last question, and it's and this, this is much more open-ended question, but in the next, I was going to put in the next 10 years, but 10 years, God knows what's going to happen. In the next five years, where do you see the cannabis industry worldwide? Oh, it's very clear to me, really. This is a consumer product. I worked for Unilever for many years, a great worldwide consumer product company, and there are many others. So what's going to happen is THC and CBD will be readily bought over the counter in drugstores or supermarkets in country after country. Specialty pharmaceuticals like we're developing to go through Health Canada, FDA, or the EU Medicines Authority, they'll be dispensed in hospitals, veterans' hospitals, or in drugstores by prescription. More than that, though, people will be able to grow plants. They'll find simple home extraction processes or they'll just make vape cartridges, hopefully carefully. In addition, marijuana eateries and bars will continue to spring up. We've seen them start here in Michigan, and it has actually reduced drunk driving, road rage. There's gathering amounts of data on this all the time. So what will really happen is people are going to be able to self-manage many of their everyday medical issues. They'll reduce their need for expensive meds, and this is going to improve our society in many ways. I just hope that my efforts to kickstart this in my own small part of the planet will bring me, frankly, I just like two simple rewards. It's not that tough. I would like the Nobel Prize. That would be nice. I would like my picture on the cover of Rolling Stone. That would be great, too. But seriously, frankly, this is a bookend to my career. I'm only 71, so I've only got about another good 25 years left to work. 
Um, but methadone was a bookend when I was 22 and 23. Now I'm able to do what we did then times a hundred and my products are far less toxic. They're not habit forming. They're not toxic to organ systems. This is frankly a great time as both a scientist and a lawyer and a business guy. I, I welcome all your listeners. If you can get behind these ideas and I'd love to hear from any one of you, anyone who wants to help with this mission, love to have your help. If you just want to comment, you can reach out to me and I'll talk or email with you anytime. First of all, how can they contact you? If a listener wants to contact you, how can they get a hold of you, Steve? Well, my email is pretty simple. It's sgoldner, that's S-G-O-L-D-N-E-R, at pure.green. That's P-U-R-E dot G-R-E-E-N. No com, no net, no org. Just sgoldner at pure.green. I hesitate to give out my phone number right now. Let's start with <laughs> my email. Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. I'm on the East Coast and you're on the West Coast. So I don't want you writing or calling me late at night, waking me up. We don't want to so blow up your phone here. Try email. And honestly, the company, it's pure green. You have other companies, but this is the one that's uh, focused on creating five custom tailored products. When I saw them, I was like, you guys are based out of the the principles for which a lot of my, the work that we were doing in my previous company was founded on, which is it's about cannabinoid ratios. It's all at the end about cannabinoid ratios that's for right. treatment of different things. And again, yes, that's, that's, that's exactly it. It's balancing the endocannabinoid system. And most people know in this society, we're kind of out of whack for a number of reasons. So, Sorry to jump back in. I guess we need to close. <laughs> no, no. I mean, again, I think you likely share this vision as well. What we're looking for at the end is helping people. The helping people on the truth. Demystifying what are often myths or lies or things that people say about a, a drug that has been used for thousands of years and that only now has begun to have this resurgence. And like you were saying, you know, if we can create a drug that's non-toxic, or at least, you know, very, the toxicity levels are very low, and that is able to help at least treat the symptoms of people that are suffering, what more can you ask, right? I think that's very well said, and to all of my friends listening, and to people I'd like to be friends with, we are always looking for smart, capable, erstwhile people to come help. I'd like them to be a little younger than me so we can be around <laughs> for a long time. But I'll take anybody who can help as we move our mission forward in this. It's truly a shared struggle, but this is destined to win and bring great medicines around the world. Now, I know this won't be the last we'll hear of you, Stephen. And I hope to have you again on the show very soon. That was Stephen Goldner, CEO and founder of Pure Green a revolutionary biotech company dedicated to making novel cannabis therapeutics. Thank you for tuning in to the Cannabis Science Podcast. If you enjoyed this program and want to learn more, 
can find additional information and resources at cannabisconciencia.org. Or you can find other shows wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This was recorded with the generous support of Vancouver Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM, CFRO. Join us today and become part of the Vancouver Co-op Radio family. Please tune in next time to another episode of Cannabis Science Podcast. Thank you for listening.